she's a pretty girl, why hide it? Don't worry about that. She'd like to wear that dress where everybody could see her, right in the middle of the Yankee Stadium. She's a tramp. I just went through all my notes and I realised the most vivid and important note is our first glimpse of Marilyn Monroe in this movie is when she's in this in the daytime she's in bed in this motel room and she's naked but all we see over are her naked arms and her shoulders and she's smoking a cigarette I've got to say I think that's the sexiest thing I've ever seen the sexiest most arousing image I've ever seen in the history of watching films is Marilyn Monroe in bed in Niagara smoking a cigarette her arms and shoulders it's uh, stellar in its eroticism I would say. She absolutely sizzles in this film and we were just saying on a previous podcast which for some reason I don't know why but it was Calamity Jane. Oh because it's 1953. Yeah. Um, in 1953 Marilyn Monroe made three films and we've already covered one which was Don't Bother to Knock. A very interesting movie. Black and white so it's so different from this mm. because it's it's the, the fact that this is colour match black and white make them seem like artefacts from different universes. It feels like they should be five years apart not yeah, five minutes. Having said that, okay, the colour photography in this is stunning and ravishing, but one of the most exciting things is when I, it came up on my screen, in its, all its glorious Blu-rayness, it's in that Square Academy format, and it's so uh, unusual to see a colour movie that isn't widescreen. It was a really knockout novelty to me, that. It, you say that it's uh, colour, and it, I mean, it is colour, we can't deny this, but I always remember every shot of this I think of when I think back to it, I think of it in black and white. And I well, think that's it's a noir. But it's just shot and lit so well. It's funny you should say that because this is effectively an Alfred Hitchcock film that wasn't directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And yeah. um, it, we should. It was directed by this. Henry Hathaway. It was indeed. Who was born in 1898. I find that fascinating. This guy was born in the 1800s. This is <laughs> this is how old films are getting now. Um, uh, I, and I, I've got to say, I don't think that he's a great director. But he's he, not. I mean, but he, well, he did how the West was won, which um, not the best film in the world, but it's it's fascinatingly shot. He's been involved in some interesting movies, uh, notably some westerns and thrillers. It's mostly westerns, isn't it? Uh, yes, I would say so. But I'm just, to me, this isn't really, although people would call this a Henry Hathaway movie, I wouldn't. It's, a, it's definitely a deliberately done in the style of Alfred Hitchcock, I would oh, yeah. say. But I think that the prime moving force behind it is not Henry Hathaway, but Charles Brackett, because he wrote and produced it. And he's a very uh, experienced and prestigious writer-producer. I'm just, oh, he wrote Sunset Boulevard. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh, I, with I, with I Billy Wilder. Oh, so he's, he was a long-time collaborator with Billy Wilder. Yes, he was. He did the, the lot. I knew I knew his name. So he worked. He was Wilder's right hand for many years, doing things like The Lost Weekend. How interesting. Five Graves to Cairo, which is... On, well, we'll put that on the list. Let's do that one, shall we? All right. Which one? Five Graves to Cairo? Yeah, because that's, that's one, one of my Christmas Blu-rays, which I'm going to be watching. But anyway, so he worked with Billy Wilder. For, oh, did he... Did they do... Um, 
the James M. Cain ticket. No, that was that was Raymond Chandler who did Double, Double Indemnity. But this is a bit like Double Indemnity in that it's a suspense movie about um, lust. Yes. Lust bringing, tearing couples apart and, and causing murder. It's very nicely plotted as well. I, what I like about this one is it starts off and it really does just feel like you've got a, a slightly dark comedy about a couple on their honeymoon right up yes. to a certain point and then suddenly it kicks up a gear. And they're um, kind of a comedy couple and they're quite likeable too. Well, one of them is Max Schwalter who, um, I mean, now, there's lots of different ways of pronouncing this. It, it looks like show. Well, I've never seen this yeah. name before in my life. It looks like Show Walter. Yeah, which is how like, I always used to pronounce show it. Until Walter, I met a show Walter. How my name is spelled. And they said it's pronounced Schult. Uh, so, and it may well be. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is that I know Max Walter from 16 Candles. And I saw that Same before. Same guy, is it? Yeah, I yeah. saw that before I saw this. And it was the last That's film he did. That's a John Hughes movie. Yeah, he, he, he just got a, a crappy little role as Uncle Fred, but he's a pervy Uncle Fred. Oh, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the guy is. There's something of a sleaze about the guy. Now, okay, just so to fill people in, yes. Niagara. Niagara Falls are these fantastic, majestic Seven Wonders of the World waterfalls on the Canadian-American border. And the, what the, this instantly means in North American cultural life, people think of honeymoons, because honeymooners go there to uh, watch the, the, the wonders of nature. But of course, there's always this underlying sort of tittering gag that they're all honeymooners, so that you know when they're not looking at the falls, they'll be shagging. So there's that kind of sexual undercurrent to this right away. And I believe that the couple, the couple who are the viewpoint couple, so to speak, who, who, who are the heroes of this, I guess, are Polly and Ray Cutler. And this isn't their honeymoon. It's sort of like a second honeymoon. It is. He's won a competition with work. I believe he sells shredded wheat for a living. He does. And he's meeting the big he boss of the, the shredded wheat He won the competition because yes. his big idea was to stuff turkey with shredded wheat. Yeah. And this is the point at which you think, what film am I going to watch here? Well, I think you're in safe hands with Charles Brackett, who worked with Billy Wilder for many years, who was the best in Hollywood. So Gene, I want to mention Gene Peters, who's Polly Cutler. And what I've written here is Gene Peters is very beautiful, but because she's in the same movie with Monroe, she hardly exists. <laughs> is that fair to say? I think there's even a scene where she, Marilyn Monroe physically casts a shadow over her. Yeah. And, in yeah. any other movie, you think, oh, who's that gorgeous brunette? But in this, it's just like, show me Marilyn smoking in bed again, please. Yeah. I could watch like an hour and a half of that. Like I say, Monroe's fantastic in this. We didn't mention the third film that she did the same year, which was Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Which you, we're going to have to put on our watching list. I watched it this afternoon. It was on uh, BBC Two. Great. Well, get me a copy and I'll watch it too. It's cracking. Um, but three very different films for her. And again, I, I, made, I had this little strop on Don't Bother to Knock. But I don't think Marilyn Monroe is remembered well enough as an actress. What I've written here is... like Obviously, I've covered the, the fact that she's has an incendiary eroticism to it. I mean, it's really something. Yeah. But I've written here that, that there's a sequence later on where she's being... Okay, so the, the basic story is that Marilyn Monroe is married to Joseph Cotton, yeah. but she's fed up with him, and, in, and she's in love with some other guy, and they've got this passionate love affair, and they're going to bump off Joseph Cotton. That's yeah. essentially the plot, and it's classic. And they're in the next honeymoon cabin, like the motel cabin, to the couple we just mentioned, Gene Peters and Max Schulter. And we have, again, Joseph Cotton. We, we covered him in I'll Be Seeing You, where he had PTSD. In this, he also has PTSD. Yeah, which, which for people who don't, don't know what that is, it, he's traumatised by war, is it? Yeah, he, he's, he's back from the army. Which um, also means, I mean, as a side uh, 
note to that. It also means that he's experienced with killing. Yes, and well, so, yeah. yeah so. He can look after himself. But what happens is Marilyn Monroe and her boyfriend try to bump him off by pushing him into the falls, basically. Yeah. It doesn't work out. And not, not only does he survive, he comes back for revenge. But what I wanted to say is when Monroe is acting scared, when he's pursuing her, I really believed her. Uh, you know, I think that she's a tremendously underrated actress because it's not that she's saying anything then, but you just believe that this woman is fleeing for her life. It's weird seeing her play a villain because we've seen her in Don't Bother to Knock where she's not a villain as such, but she's dangerous. Yeah, she's dangerous because she's mentally ill. Yeah. In this one, she's just a bit of a she's, bitch. She's femme fatale, yeah. Yeah. Um, boy, does she make a great job. <laughs> I, I, oh, this film had a profound effect on me when I first saw it. I, I, I can see um, why. I just think it's... it's Okay, so it really is a Hitchcock-style thriller, both in its suspense... Well, in, in a number of important ways... Because it's a well-constructed suspense story about ordinary people who get sucked into... That was my cat going out the cat flap, bless her. Gets sucked into murder and intrigue. It's classic Hitchcock. But it's also classic Hitchcock that it's about this extraordinary blonde woman. It's beautiful blonde. And it's full of kind of extraordinary imagery and sort of fetishism. There's a, I mentioned that Joseph Cotton is pursuing Marilyn Monroe to kill her because she tried to kill him. And... I thought this, he's bound to throw in the falls or it'll be this big suspense sequence in the falls. But no, the other main feature of Niagara is that there's this weird bell tower. It's an extraordinary structure, very modernist looking bell tower, not like an old church. And they play like pop tunes or any tunes you like in this bell tower. And this features in the story because there's a signal from Marilyn Monroe to her lover to indicate that uh, that Joseph Cotton had been successfully killed, I believe. Yeah, other way around, he was signalling her to let her know that he'd been killed. Yeah, and uh, I think Joseph Cotton arranges for the tune to be played anyway, and Marilyn Monroe thinks that he's been killed. That's the only complication I have, is how he knew that yeah. that was part of the plan. It must have been written down somewhere. But the point is, it, this is a symbolic, important place in terms of the, uh, in terms of the attempt to kill uh, Joseph Cotton. So... It makes absolute sense. Also, it's a great location that when he pursues her and eventually kills her, it takes place in this slightly spooky bell tower. Mm. And when they, they're in there, again, it's a classic Hitchcock sequence. Like There's a chase up the stairs, the, the camera angles, the, the photography is wonderful. You're going to talk about the cinematographer in well, a moment. Well, it's the lighting that I was talking yeah. about. And the thing is, I was looking, there is no credit for lighting on this film. Well, that, he's the lighting is, cameraman. Well... Not necessarily, because I looked it up and it was Joe McDonald yeah. who did the cinematography. And I looked through his other credits and nothing stands out for lighting. And I think you have to give a bit of credit. There will be lighting people on set for this, but people weren't credited back then. Now they are. Well, but in Britain, the cinematographer is called the lighting cameraman. Yeah. And it is the job of the main cinematographer in Hollywood or to, to light the scene as well. Yes, but you still need people who know how to light it. You can ask for a certain light. So it, he it, was working with a, uh, an A team on this, let's yeah, say. We've seen people mess up lighting. In, in this, the whole movie looks gorgeous. The outdoor sequence, look, it has one flaw. All the back projection photography is really dodgy. And I've written down, just like in a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. So that, even that's in keeping with Hitchcock. However, and this is in keeping with, well... I brought this up because we also talked about Calamity Jane, another 1953 movie, and I said the back projection is way better than that. It proves that it actually could be done. 
because it's in here this is the real failing of this every time it's the back projection it just looks like a phony fake movie however i have written that in the climax when they uh of the movie when they in the fall in the water into the falls i say the back projection gets better which is exactly what you were saying wasn't yeah it? absolutely it does i think it's really well shot that last sequence it still looks phony, but not as phony. But uh, putting all that aside, what I wanted to say is in that bell tower sequence, there's a bit where Joseph Cotton's closing in on Marilyn, and she's just illuminated by this red light. And that, that's it's like vertigo before vertigo. Yeah. And also, when... I hope we're not spoiling this for anyone. No, I, I know what you're going to say. When Joseph Cotton kills her, he strangles her, yeah. um, we cut away to the bells... Ah, oh, that's a wonderful shot. Bells ringing, and then we come back when she's already expired and she just drops down. And it doesn't. You you were saying earlier that it fetishizes something. It doesn't fetishize murder, which is interesting. No, and what you've reminded me. You've reminded me of how fabulous all those shots inside the bell tower are. There's there's often just a sequence, like almost a montage of different angles of the of the bells of the bell tower. It looks amazing. It's all in the shadows, and it's this is why wonderful. I remember this film as being black and white in my head because yeah, the because shadows the shadow. are key to but everything. Look, it's a fabulous movie. That sequence is incredible, and what happens is, and again, this is Hitchcock. He's murdered her at the top of the bell tower. Meanwhile, it's the end of the working day, and they've locked the bell tower, so he's stuck <laughs> in this building with the corpse of his wife. And at one point, when she was fleeing through the bell tower, she saw a public phone and she went to a pay phone and she was hastily fumbling in her purse to try and get out a coin to call somebody, the police perhaps, because her husband is coming to kill her. And she couldn't get the money out in time. She abandons the phone and she abandoned her purse. So after Joseph Cotton discovers that he's locked inside the bell tower, he comes back up the stairs and he, he on his way back to the top where she's lying dead and he sees her abandoned purse and he talk about fetishization can't even say the word he takes out her lipstick from the purse which is in this kind of extraordinary jeweled kind of cylinder and he rolls out the red lipstick and just looks at it and that again that struck me as a kinky hitchcock kind of touch if memory serves, I think it's the lipstick that's sitting outside of the bag. As he comes up the stairs, there's a Quite beautiful possibly. light on it which gleams. Yeah, well, it's, it's of this the extraordinary kind of jeweled cylinder. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's very well shot. And then he goes back up to the top of the tower, and the, the thing, well, I forgot to mention because Joseph Cotton is such a good actor, one almost takes it for granted. You're it's completely sympathetic towards him. He's not yes. like this monster. You sort of just feel his plight, and after he's killed her. He obviously is regrets it. And what he does is he goes back to the bell tower where she's lying dead and he kind of curls up beside her. Yeah, It's I, really moving. I mean, it's not creepy. It's just kind of tragic. As we know, I really like Joseph Cotton. Well, you should. This He's is, an, an amazingly good actor. Yeah. His, uh, his films have long been on my list of things to watch. But I like to think that I've, this is not Joseph Cotton and his prime. He's getting on a bit by this stage. And I like to think that if... I was married to Marilyn Monroe at that time. I would look like Joseph Cotton in this film. <laughs> you said that he's getting on a bit, but I mean, this is early in his career. He'd, he'd been acting for what? I mean, he'd been yeah. in the movies for about 10 years now. Uh, yeah, shit's going south now. But the trouble was, Citizen, Joseph Cotton had a drinking problem. Oh, forgive me for interrupting. Was Citizen Kane like 39? Something like 1940? Yeah, it was late 30s. Okay, so he'd been a decade and a half he'd been in movies. Yeah, I mean, he'd spent pretty much most of the 50s solidly making films. This was 53. So, yeah, he has still got some time to go, but he looks considerably older in this than he had in... I didn't know he had a drink problem. Uh, yeah, he got really bad. 
Um, this is why you don't see much of him towards the end. And I think the last film he did, which was um, Island of the Fish People. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's an Italian uh, sort of excessive horror. It's not even a giallo. It's not even a horror. It's just a piece of crap, really. Um, but he is so clearly off his face throughout that whole film. And it's sad to see the decline because he is terrific. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor. But I would like to sort of focus on Gene Peters. So what happens in this movie is Joseph Cotton is is in the frame to be bumped off by his wife and her lover, Marilyn Monroe and the guy. And people, everybody, including Marilyn, thinks that he has been killed. Yeah. Because a body is found. It later turned out to be the body of the lover, not of the husband. But everybody assumes it's the husband, including Gene Peters, who's in the cabin next door and is sort of comforting Monroe and, and all the rest of it. But then Gene Peters sees Joseph Cotton live and she tries to tell her husband about it and the cops. And because she's a woman, they just don't believe it. They just say, you had a nightmare. And I was so angry. Yeah. What's caused that is uh, when uh, Joseph Cotton's died, what originally happened when Gene Peters and Max Walter turned up as this newlywed couple, or this couple on their second honeymoon, they couldn't move into their apartment because Marilyn Monroe and Joseph Cotton hadn't moved out of theirs. Yeah. Uh, once Joseph Cotton's dead, within about three hours, they move Marilyn Monroe well, to another it, one yeah, and well, move them into the one they the were meant to be The cabin has a much better view. <laughs> and um, so Joseph Cotton, when he comes back, doesn't know they've changed yeah. apartments and he's just about to get his revenge on what he thinks is a sleeping Marilyn is actually a sleeping Gene Peters, so... Well, so what you're saying is she's just woken up and everybody thinks she just had a nightmare when yeah. she glimpses him. But it's, you know, it's, it's this infantilization of women and refusal to listen to them, which I found incredibly angry because Jean Peters, although she's wiped out by Monroe in this movie, is very good. Yeah. And what happens at the final phase of the movie is that even... The, the stupid, thick cops become aware that the that Joseph Cotton is alive and he's murdered Marilyn and he's on the run, he's a fugitive and he steals a boat and through a series of coincidences, the boat he steals to escape in because like all the other exits are sealed has Gene Peters in it. Oh, that's my cat coming through the cat. Hello, one. <laughs> hey, Jade, welcome back. Um, so his only way out, he thinks, is is over across the water mm. because the uh, the... You can't go up by bus or by car, which would be the normal, because they're roadblocks. And everybody's looking for him. So he steals this boat, and it happens that Gene Peters is on the boat, and he actually knocks her unconscious. But the thing is, he never wants to hurt Gene Peters. No. He would rather that she, he, she wasn't on the boat. And in fact, in a sense, I mentioned earlier that I was disappointed that the murder of Marilyn didn't take place climactically over the falls. That's because this movie is saving that climax at the falls as a card up its sleeve for the the ending of the movie, which is when Joseph Cotton thinks he's going to escape in the boat, but the boat is out of fuel. And so he and poor Gene Peters, who's just along for the ride, are being swept inexorably towards the towering waterfalls, which will be their death if the boat goes over it. And it's sheer bad luck on Cotton's part that he's picked the only boat that they've just gone off to get petrol for. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Poor sod. He's just having the worst weekend. And what happens is he effectively sacrifices himself. Yeah. Like he makes sure that Gene Peters is safely put on uh, an outcrop of rock. And then he goes over the falls in the boat. Yeah. And it's tragic. I mean, a, a lot of people would have... I can't, it's hard to imagine another actor who could have remained sympathetic in that role. But you just feel that he's a man in torment. 
He has eyes that always look apologetic. And I think that I helps agree. enormously. And, and express suffering too, I think. Yeah. Well, imagine he was, who knows. But what really bugs me with that outcome is that at the very end of the film, Starkey, who's the detective, gets thanked by everyone. Oh, that's right. I've written, I've written the cop. <laughs> what did he the do? Cop, I've written the cop and Jean Peters' husband don't believe her when she says cop is still alive because she's a woman. And she never calls him on it. And she thanks the cop at the end. So that struck you too. It's infuriating. It is infuriating. Because the guy did nothing. Yeah. Cotton did everything. And I don't understand. All he did was maybe call the Coast but, Guard. But there, there, there's a very exciting scene where she's rescued, or Jean Peters is rescued in a helicopter. Yes, by the Coast Guard, not yeah, by the police. Not by the, 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 also, he that, made a phone call. That was about all he did, the cop. And the note I've got about that is that that mangy old rusted Coast Guard helicopter, I think I'd rather have taken my chances oh, on the it, boat. It was state-of-the-art at the time. But listen, <laughs> this movie was state-of-the-art at the time, and it remains fantastic now too it's like a hitchcock that's not a hitchcock and it's got marilyn monroe and it. it's got a stellar cast the photography is amazing there's a, some dodgy back for projection but like i say that you'd get that in any hitchcock movie too some really nice music too oh i didn't really register the music because well, the bells which are i mean if you wanted to make someone vomit in their own mouth you could say that they are diegetic uh, yeah, yeah i was gonna um, i was gonna say that without <laughs> vomiting yeah <laughs> In it's other words, that's it, it, music that's taking place within the story of the movie. In fact, I think all the music does, because the other music is at the party right at the very beginning. I don't remember any background score, but I'm sure there is one. No, I don't. And, and as Monroe sashays out very early on when all the kids outside are having a party. While kids having a party. And yeah. puts her own record on. Oh, that's good stuff. She's so good. Yeah, she's... Okay, I can't and say she, enough she puts about the record her. on just to wind up... <laughs> Her husband, oh, driver, her husband well. crazy. Look, this is a classic. I've got to get a copy of this for myself. I just think it's really a wonderful film. And anybody who's interested in Hitchcock needs to see this to see that other people were doing it exactly what he was doing and even better. Yes. been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself Andrew Cartmel but very importantly the music the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer thank you very much Joe look honey you can see it from here <laughs> the falls are that way he's talking about the shredded wheat plant I worked for him but I'm seeing the joint for the first time where breakfast food became a national institution